ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. It's more than 50 years since Ross Fitzgerald had his last drink and not that much later he took his last drug. He's been sober since then, something that he attributes to Alcoholics Anonymous. It hasn't been easy, but he's lived to tell the tale, something that would not have happened if he'd kept drinking. Ross is a great advocate for AA and has written about his life drinking and then not drinking in his book, 50 Years Sober, An Alcoholic's Journey. It's a book that also details his life as an academic, a writer, a world traveller, a husband, a father and a grandfather. Ross, welcome to Overnight. Lovely to talk with you, Rod. Is there anything about alcohol that you miss? Well, no, I sort of miss it like a hole in the head. I mean, I certainly don't regret starting drinking. If I hadn't have started drinking alcohol at the age of 14 years and a month, I would have suicided by the time I was 17 because I felt like a garbage tip as a child. So alcohol never made me feel as good as other people or comfortable, but it held down the pain of being myself for a while. But alcoholism is a progressive illness, and if I hadn't have stopped drinking and using uh, in 1970, when I was 24, I wouldn't have made 1971. So uh, I don't consciously miss alcohol, although from time to time, like a lot of sober alcoholics, I dream about drinking. And in my early years, I found that frightening because I'd dream about getting on the piss and that AA'd failed and that I drank again and I'd wake up in a cold sweat. Fortunately, I shared this with my AA mentor, Broken Hill Jack, and he pointed out it's actually a very good sign that sober alcoholics dream about drinking because it means the unconscious is chomping through all of this material. You talk about your family a lot in your book, and it seems as though you come to terms with your parents much later in your life than you did, like many people, in their teens or early 20s. What was your family life like and why did that contribute to you drinking from the age of 14? Yeah, um, I I didn't come to terms with my mother. I'll I'll get on to that. My mother and father had a child, a a baby called Rodney, and Rodney died in my father's arms on a tram going into the Alfred Hospital when he was about four months old. And that had an absolutely devastating effect. My mother changed from being a Christian to an atheist. Uh, She didn't even go to the funeral, never went to the gravestone. I found out later that my mother had tried to have Rodney aborted and she therefore blamed herself for his death, which doesn't make physiological sense, but it makes psychological sense. And uh, they had three more miscarriages and then I was born on Christmas Day 1944. And every now and again my mother would point up to the stars and say, do you see the brightest star in all of the skies? And she'd say, that's your brother Rodney. And I used to, I mean, how can you compete? Do you think she knew what she was doing? No, not really. I mean, she would also lie when telling the truth would do. 
So if she gave someone a trinket, she'd say it was gold. And it's very hard for a child not to have a bedrock uh, of truth and, and stability. Now, my father was my great hero until I started to drink at 14. He captained Collingwood seconds for over 100 games, never played for the firsts because that was when Collingwood won four premierships in a row. He was a very good wicketkeeper for Collingwood uh, and uh, I was actually a very talented young cricketer. I, I, I represented the Victorian schoolboys. I realise now that as soon as I started to drink alcohol, um, my father turned in my mind from a hero to a turd and I gave him a terrible time. And I'm so pleased that in the last three years of his life, my dad and I got to know each other, and I'm very similar to my father, I realise now. Do you think you're born an alcoholic? I think that I have a very strong um, predisposition to alcoholism. See, my dad never drank a teaspoonful of alcohol, very rare for a Collingwood footballer, because his father destroyed the family and the business with his drinking. Uh, and my dad had a pathological fear and hatred of alcohol. And I'm a Celt. I mean, my, our background's Celtic on one side, American on the other. And it's not an accident that there are heaps of Celtic alcoholics. So I think there was a strong genetic predisposition. Your father, having seen what his father had been through with his alcoholism. Did he see that in you? Did he recognise that immediately and try and help you? Again, I don't know whether he did, did it consciously. I remember when I was about 14 and a half, I'd been drinking all night down at Brighton Beach and I staggered home about two o'clock in the morning and my father, who, who was very tall and erect, was waiting for, for me and he said, what are you celebrating, son? And I had no answer. I, I didn't know that, in a sense, I was drinking because I had to. So I don't know whether that answers the question, Rod. But he recognised that you're an alcoholic? At some deep level, deep unconscious, but he never raised, raised it with me. But you see, I left home when I was 15. Mm. I was still at school, and my first um, heterosexual relationship, she was 19. She moved me out of home, and I was still... <laughs> Still going to Melbourne High, and I then had very little contact with my my family. To answer your question, I certainly made up with my dad. Unlike a lot of parents, he was so pleased that I was a member of AA, mm -hmm. and uh, he would tell my boys and Alcoholics Anonymous, and he became friendly with one of my other mentors, Antique Harry. But I never. I never made up with my mother. Indeed, my father died about a week after he retired. I used to jokingly say, but like a lot of jokes, there's an element of truth in it, that the thought of being full-time with Edna was enough to knock him on the head. But he died of a heart attack and he had Parkinson's. I was three years sober when he died. The funeral was in Melbourne. And my Sydney sponsor, Jimmy from Kingsford, said, stay for no longer than two hours after the funeral. And I had a lot of those 
pretend aunties, these sort of witch-like creatures, the worst of whom was Auntie Cloris. And Auntie Cloris said, well, now that your uh, father has died, you'll be coming back to live full-time to look after your darling mother. And I said, actually, Cloris, I'm leaving in 21 minutes' time. And my experience is that I haven't come across anyone who's got sober in AA for any length of time that hasn't done things we'd rather not do. Mm. If I'd have had my druthers, I would have liked my mother and I to love each other or to like each other, but we didn't. How did you feel when she died? Well, it it was such a long process... You see, my mother was also very partial to the odd few hundred tablets, but uh, she went blind. She had glaucoma and cataracts at the one time, and in those days they couldn't fix them up. So she had to go into an old people's home, an Anglican home, and I often think how awful would it be to, to have someone with that paranoid mindset that my mum had and to be blind, and they promised us she'd never have to leave, and then the Church of England sold up the bloody place after three years, just as as a blind person she'd got used to getting her way around. So, and eventually I had to get them to turn off the machine. Towards the end she had no legs, and yet they were keeping her alive. And they said to me, we're doing this for your mother. I said, no, you're not. You're doing it for yourselves. I'm the only child. Turn off the machines. Ross Fitzgerald is our guest. 50 Years Sober is his book. When you're drinking at that time in your life for about 10 years, from 14 to 24 or so, were you able to enjoy the taste of alcohol? A lot of people love a nice red or champagne. Was there anything at all that you were able to enjoy? Enjoy is not quite... I certainly didn't, didn't like or dislike the taste. I didn't drink uh, for the taste. I drank to, to anaesthetise myself. Uh, enjoy is not the word, but the fact that it for a while made me not suicidal. Mm. I know I'm not answering this very well. It's hard to explain. So there was no aesthetic pleasure... None at all. ...in drinking? No. Alcohol. I keep saying that because yes, funnily I enough, know, I had yeah. a ring from a new AA member right. called Helen, who's a dominatrix, which is one of the few forms of sexual activity I haven't been interested in. But she said to me, but at least I don't use drugs, Ross. And I said to her, Helen, what do you think alcohol is, a mm. vitamin? When I talk at AA, I always say, my name is Ross, I'm an alcoholic, and a person addicted to drugs other than the drug alcohol. I've been saying that for 54 years, but it doesn't really connect because to drink in our lexicon is to drink alcohol. And sometimes I'll be at a party when I used to be able to drink bitter lemon, but they seem to have stopped selling it. And someone will say, what's the matter? Don't you drink, Ross? And I'd say, what do you think I'm doing? Eating a sandwich. When we're talking about drinking... Today, though, we are talking about alcohol. So it also appears to me that when you are an alcoholic, or you are an alcoholic, but when you're an alcoholic who is drinking, you spend all your time with fellow alcoholics. 
Yes. I mean, I didn't mind who I drank with. You could find them anywhere, though. You would look at someone and you knew that they were an alcoholic. That's true. And it also happens in sobriety that if if I'm in a train or a bus, you can bet your bum that someone who comes to sit next to me is an alcoholic or someone with a problem. There's something about me that on first meeting me, uh, people confide their intimate medical details and they'll start telling me about their problems. Quite often, people who are alcoholics and haven't got help yet hit rock bottom, as they call it. I don't know whether this was your rock bottom, but you drove a car off a bridge once. No, that was, that was when I was about 18. Alcohol also propelled me for a while, so I topped every subject at Monash University for the first two years. And because I'd been a nuisance at school, I got bumped up a grade. And because my birthday's Christmas Day, I actually went to Monash University when I was 16 years and a month. So after I topped everything in the second year, uh, I got invited to give a talk at an Australian history conference at Menangle. I realise now I put my tippy toes into the conference and was terrified and I went down uh, to the local pub at about 10 in the morning. There was a young bloke there we'd never met. After about 10 rums and beers, the most appropriate thing in the world appeared to us to be to steal a car, make a suicide pact. Now, whose car was that, by the way? (laughs) Well, that's very funny. It turned out to be W.C. Wentworth. Billy Wentworth. Billy Wentworth, who was very kind to my mother and father. Now, he's a prominent federal member of parliament at that stage. Yeah, he was the minister for, probably then he was the minister for Aboriginal Affairs. Mm. But they were very kind to my mum and dad. And I got taken under air ambulance to the Royal Prince Hospital and they performed this amazing operation on me. Now, if alcoholism wasn't the sort of illness it is... I'm not a dill, a chap would have said, why on earth did I do that? Or why did I do all these other... But I just kept going straight ahead. And I know this is jumping, but after I got sober, I was telling you that when I was on the, uh, on the booze, I thought I, uh, I thought I was a writer, but I hardly wrote a note to the milkman, two pints today, milkman, money under brick. But since getting sober, not for the first three years, I've just had my 45th book that I've authored or co-authored, a a political satire called Pandemonium, which still describes my internal state sometimes. But I'd had my first little book published, a book of poems called The Eyes of Angels. And Steve from Gordon said to me, go back and thank the people who've helped you. And one of them was Dr. Miles Little who did this remarkable operation on me. He's a very fine poet, by the way. And he was the first person to pin me as an alcoholic because after coming out of ICU and being in the wards, they told me that I'd pulled the drips out of my arm and I was on the way to the pub in my pyjamas. He was very pleased that I was alive and he said, well, I've just had a book published, Ross. There's no poetry in this one, but there's plenty of you. And the book was called Liver Trauma. And it was about the eight most amazing operations he'd done uh, as a liver surgeon. And he said, you know, and there were photo- I'm told there were photographs of my inside. 
I'm jumping all over the place. That's okay, because I want to come back and ask, after you had your first drink at this famous pub in Melbourne, you had your last drink there at the same of pub alcohol, yes. of, of alcohol. Why did you stop? Did somebody come to you and say, Ross, you're an alcoholic, you need help, or did it finally dawn on you? Well, I knew I was an alcoholic for the last six years because every time I'd get hospitalised, I was hospitalised for alcoholism and drug addiction. Now, in my case, I was and I am needle phobic, so I never shot up, which saved most of my friends from those days are long, long gone. So I, I knew I was an, al- an alcoholic, but again, it didn't lead on uh, to thinking I could do anything about it. I finished up in Cleveland, Ohio, and if you added up all the time I was in the one mental hospital in the three years that I was there, I was hospitalised for a year and a half. You, in fact, were in a mental facility, mental health facility, every Christmas day, every birthday, but one, I think, during the entire time you were drinking. That's right, and on a couple of my Christmas days, I had ECT, I had shock therapy, in my case, I think it was uh, without anaesthesia. Anyway, after about the fourth time I'd been hospitalised, a young resident doctor said to me, Ross, have you ever thought of going to Alcoholics Anonymous? And had you? No, and I looked at this bloke straight in the eye and I said, what's the point of going to AA? I can't stop drinking. Well, I suppose he knew that if I stayed alive... You know, the effects of alcohol and drugs might lead me to do something. But I'll tell you what did... Uh, a lot of things entered my mind, but the thought of stopping drinking never entered my mind until the very day that AA came across me. I used to think I was clever, that I paid for nothing, but I thought I was especially clever that within 24 hours of arriving anywhere, I'd find some lucky woman to look after me. They weren't Melbourne Cup winners. I wasn't big on quality, but they shared two things in common. They breathed in and out, and they all left me. And the woman who lasted the longest was a woman called Rosemary, and she eventually got sick of me. She wanted to marry me. There's a lot of mad people in the world. Uh, And she shot through to Akron, Ohio, where AA began. And I wrote her this pathetic suicide note that said, Darling... If anything should happen to me, please don't feel it's all your fault. Now, I think that's a brilliant comic line, but I meant it. Eventually, though, I couldn't get any woman to look after me, and I finished up living with an old boilermaker called Bill. For a while, we lived in the black ghettos in Cleveland, and then we switched to Little Italy, which was a very violent anti-black place. He was a bender drinker. I remember... We cleaned our teeth and we vomited simultaneously and I said, mate, we've got to stop this cleaning our teeth because every time we clean our teeth we get crook. How mad is that? He was away on a drinking jag. Now, I'd had auditory hallucinations since I was about 16, but this was the first time the animals came after me. The ceiling came down and the walls moved in and these salivating Alsatian dogs were out to devour me. And I'm a living example. You can be drunk and terrified. And for the first time in my young life, I was then, 
I don't think I'd turned 24, but I was, I, I was around 24. A thought entered my head. Roscoe, it might be a bad idea to do something about your drinking for a while. And I waddled down. I was 16 stone, not because I was eating a lot. I was taking 15 barbiturates a day. They bloated me. And I used to drink in a bar, a midday to midnight bar, that actually the Cleveland Browns drank at. And the barman, Jimmy Jacanales, who used to visit me in the mental hospitals, uh, he'd let me come in for a couple of hours, like at 10 o'clock, while he got the place ready. And I'd be sitting there listening to songs like Desolation Row and I'm a Nowhere Man, crying my eyes out. Uh, He literally saved my life in New York six months earlier. So I went into the bar and I said, Jimmy... I've decided to do something about my drinking. And he said, fantastic news. And a half an hour later, I was back saying, give me a drink. That's how long I lasted on my own, Rod. And instead of a drink, he said, get your ass out of here and ring this number. And it was the number of Alcoholics Anonymous in Cleveland. And a friend of mine, actually the son of of Sir Stafford Cripps, uh, called Jeremy Cripps, took me to my first AA meeting, which was a lunchtime meeting. It was an all-women's meeting and they wouldn't let me in. So I'm not a big believer in special meetings. But I must have been desperate because I got taken to a meeting that night. I can't remember much that was said, but a gay bloke took me home and gave me an Astrakhan coat because I'd lived in America in Cleveland for two winters without a coat. Eventually, I got sent home to Australia. As you pointed out, I finished up having my last drink of alcohol in in Her Majesty's Hotel near Melbourne High School to tell these teachers what a great success I'd made in my life. I'd been to an AA meeting the night before and someone had had put a, a number and I went to a friend, and he's, he's my oldest friend. He lived down the street. He was, my mother and father said, if it wasn't for that dreadful Ken Gooding, our wonderful boy wouldn't have gone off the rails. Anyway, Ken rang this bloke called Mick from Sandringham, who'd been about one or two years sober, and he came. He'd had a burning resentment against my dad, as it turned out, because when my father was at the end of his career, Mick began his with Carlton, and uh, my old man whacked him. Very boys' own stuff. He took me to a meeting at St Kilda, and there I met a man called Lee Parry. Now, Lee didn't know me from a bar of soap, but he knew my only chance, and I had to live with my poor old mum and dad for the first time since I was 15. Uh, He took me and a German bloke every night for the first three months. I tried to kill myself and I finished up with my friend Barry, Barry Humphreys. He and I drank together and got sober together. We finished up in this uh, alcohol and drug rehabilitation hospital called Delmont. And the lead psychiatrist there, Dr John Moon, who was a Christadelphian, a weird Christian sect, but a terrific psychiatrist. And the night before we were due to be discharged, we got taken to a big AA meeting at the Malvern Town Hall. I knew AA worked by this stage, but I didn't think it could work for me because I felt too bad about myself. And I came up to Antique Harry and I said after the meeting, Harry, 
do you ever think I'll get this thing? And instead of saying no hope unless you get off the tablets, which is true but not particularly useful, he said, son, if you stay close to this movement, you'll be all right. Now those words changed my life. Even then I knew Harry couldn't have had faith in me. How could he? I was so damaged, not just by alcohol and all the other tablets I was taking, but by the masses of shock therapy I've had. I came to realise that what he had faith in were strong meetings of AA that start on time and finish on time, and within that structure, sober alcoholics talk about what we used to be like, what happened and what we're like now. That's done something for me that all the money in this big city couldn't buy. As you pointed out in the intro, I've only been sober not since I just stopped drinking alcohol, but since I stopped taking other mood-changing drugs as well. And that happened on Australia Day 1970. Your mother's name was Edna. Yes. Barry's greatest creation is Edna. Yes. Did he find that amusing? Well, funnily enough, he and Edna got on well. <laughs> really? Yeah. Every time he'd perform in Melbourne, he'd invite her. And I, my mum told me one time, he said, there's a real Edna here tonight. She's going to be so cross I mentioned her. But more importantly... Barry Humphrey's dad and my dad became extremely close because they were both very worried about us. Yeah. Now, my dad never read a book, as far as I know. Every Saturday night, he'd read the pink-coloured Sporting Globe. The only book I can remember in our house was The Power of Positive Thinking, which, as far as I could see, remained unopened. So... My dad was certainly not learned. Barry's father, Eric, was a, a very conservative builder from Camberwell. Shortly before Barry and I stopped drinking, Eric Humphrey said, I was so worried about Barry Bill, I couldn't play golf on Tuesday. And that reminds me very much of my favourite character, which is Sandy Stone. How did you meet Barry? Barry and I met at the Notting Hill hotel, big hotel, very close to Monash University. And I spent most of my time there. You see, when I was in my first couple of years, all you had to do was the final exams. But as I said, I finished up topping all subjects for two years, but I spent most of my time there. And I'd get there about 10 o'clock. I heard this voice say, I am what I am. I am what I am. I'm Popeye the Sailor Man. And he said, g'day, my name's Commie George. And he was an ex-president of the Victorian Communist Party. I'd actually tried to join the Communist Party. I met an organiser outside the Brighton Mays factory in Richmond when I was about 15. He listened to me for about 30 seconds and put his hand up and he said, I think you can do better elsewhere, son. And they didn't turn too many members down in the late 1950s. <laughs> anyway, but Barry came uh, when I was drinking I think in my second year, and he and I drank, you know, for hours and hours, and then we'd uh, drink in other pubs in Carlton where he used to drink. The way you describe your mother, Edna, very much sounds like Edna Everidge in a way. Very proper, suburban Melbourne mother who was keen on niceness. Barry Humphreys often talked about niceness. niceness yeah. And you write about niceness in your book that yes. 
she never wanted to be embarrassed, of course. I mean, no one does, but, you know... She thought she'd married below herself. Yeah. When you went out, you had to be dressed properly and, and act the right way. That reminds me very much of the way that Barry presented Edna. In the beginning, that's true. Yes. But, of course, the character of Edna Everidge, uh, he created a long time... Yes, long before... A few years before he and my mum yeah. uh, got close. You were there the night that Barry first presented Les Patterson to the world. Tell me what happened that night. I was living in a flat in Sydney, in Sydney, Surrey Hills. It was after The Adventures of Baza McKenzie was made. And you're in, in that. In which I played a cameo role, ho-ho. Anyway, I was in this little one-bedroom flat in Surrey Hills and Barry came, knocked on the door I didn't have a phone. Anyway, he said, listen, will you come with me to the Rooty Hill RSL? I want to go and case the joint. So we went there. It was packed and we sat down and Barry said, I'll be back in a minute. And a couple of minutes later, this dishevelled, not fall over drunk, but stumbling bloke said, g'day. The name's Leslie Colin Patterson. Manager, Rudy Hill. This is on stage. On stage. Because people, it was an auditorium. Because mm-hmm. like a lot of RSLs, they'd yeah. have performers. And sometimes during the day. And he delivered this meandering speech about time waits for no man. And it took me a couple of minutes to realise it was Barry. Now, this was way before he turned Sir Les into that vaudeville character mm-hmm you know, dribbling, dipsomaniacal, minister of the yachts and head of the cheese board. But yes, I was there when Barry first played Les Patterson. What did you make of Barry's incredible success, first in London and then in, on Broadway and then just throughout the world? I've regarded him as one of the great comic performers anywhere in the world of the 20th century. Ian McFadgen from the Comedy Company he and I have written some Grafton Everest novels together, the last one being Pandemonium. He and Barry Humphreys are the two most talented human beings I've ever met in my life. Did you go to AA meetings with Barry Humphreys? Oh, yes. So what's it like when he walks in the door? Now, of course... The key part of Alcoholics Anonymous is that it's anonymous. You and he made no secret of the fact that you attended the meetings. But yes, what was we, the... we've both written about it yeah. in Barry's memoirs like More Please yeah. and in in my first memoir, My Name is Ross, and then in 50 Years, the recent 50 book, years sober, yeah. 50 Years Sober. So what's the reaction when he walked into an AA meeting when people obviously knew that you had to keep it anonymous, but they were... Were they stunned to see him? It's complicated. Barry nearly died. He nearly got killed in a pub in Richmond. He brought about a fight with with someone and he was in St Vincent's Hospital in the alcoholism ward and there was a bloke called Tony Burke, son of Burke Stores, who was a year or so sober and he said to his wife, this bloke's an alcoholic. And he, like me... In my early years, I was very evangelical. So he went to see Barry a number of times. And Barry thought he was a pest. But he finally agreed to go to an AA meeting. And he went to a meeting at Sandringham, pissed, 
because like me, I used to drink a lot in the mental hospitals and take drugs in the mental hospital. Anyway, Antique Harry was speaking and Barry called out, tell us something we don't know already. And Antique Harry pointed at Barry and he said, I'll tell you something you don't know. We're all sober and you're pissed. But then when he finally got sober, he would go to meetings all, all over the place. But AA is very accepting. So there are heaps of very famous actors and, and producers and singers. Tony Bennett, for example, was a, a, a long-time member. And so sometimes people get amazed, but... You know, when stars of international television arrive, it's quite common that people from all walks of life, all standards of education, all races and genders... It doesn't, it doesn't discriminate. doesn't discriminate. The illness doesn't discriminate. And Alcoholics Anonymous doesn't either. Anyone no. can turn up. Absolutely. And it's really the closest thing to a peaceful anarchist organisation because there are no rules in AA. You can't be expelled from AA. You don't have to do anything. The only requirement for membership is a desire, however slim, to stop drinking alcohol. Ross Fitzgerald is our guest. So I'd like to know what happens at an AA meeting, because most of us haven't been to one. I've never been to one. Most people, by the way, are welcome to come. Most AA meetings are open to the public. Mm. Like the meeting I, I go to regularly here is uh, at Redfern, the South Sydney meeting on a Saturday at two o'clock in Keppel Street, Redfern. So people are welcome to come. And a lot of my friends in the media and other places have come. But what happens is that there's a secretary of the meeting and he picks someone to be in, to be in the chair of the meeting. The meeting's they always used to be an hour and a half, but many an hour, an hour. The secretary writes down the names of people and then the chairman might say, well, Helen, could you open the meeting by speaking? Now, sometimes people say no. A famous woman called Lady Bede, who was sober for 50 years, who never spoke once in AA. And people usually talk about what we used to be like what's happened and what we're like now. So how does that work then? Why does that work? Why does that make you stop drinking? To sit in a room with other alcoholics for an hour and a half and listen to their life stories. Why does that mean that when you walk out of that room, you're not going to have a drink? Well, it's very hard to explain. I'm an atheist, but I got released. That's the only metaphor I can use. I got released from the need to drink alcohol and take other drugs quite early on, say if there are 30 people in the room, the effect isn't 30 by one. There's some sort of collective force. I mean, AA uses the phrase, a power greater than yourself. A lot of people think AA is Christian, but it's not. When I first came in, they used to say, there's room for us all in AA, those that believe in God, those that don't believe in God, and those that think they are God. Well, these days I'm number two. But there's something about that identification. I brought my friend Lily, who works next door to where I live, to a meeting. She expressed amazement of how articulate 
all the speakers were, no matter whether they'd just come out of jail or couldn't read or couldn't write. And I think that's because alcoholics feel safe in AA, because it is non-judgmental. You've been to meetings where there was just you and one other person. That's true. You've been to meetings where there are 30, 40, 50, who knows? I've been to meetings when there are 200 people in India. AA is very strong in India, unfortunately it's all mainly men. The St Vincent's meeting where I met my darling wife, Lyndall Moore, that used to have 150 members each Sunday night. And it was actually Barry Humphreys that that got me to go to that meeting to meet Lyndall. And she never drank a teaspoonful uh, from the first moment we met. So she was 45 years sober when she died on January the 22nd, 2020. And I miss her more and more and more. I would find it very difficult living with a drinking alcoholic Mm. or even living with people who drink a lot. I mean, some people say they're not frightened of alcohol. Well, if I'm not frightened of drinking alcohol, it's close, Rod. I want to ask then, in that whole time, maybe more so at the start of your sobriety than now, how close did you come to having another drink? I think only once. See, I went to a meeting of AA every night for four four years here in Sydney and I didn't go to one too many because I was just so damaged. The book Alcoholics Anonymous says that a body that's been badly battered and a mind that's been badly burnt does not heal overnight. Well, that's certainly true for me. When I got into a whole lot of trouble in Brisbane during the Bialke-Peterson years because they were threatening me with criminal libel and there hadn't been a criminal libel case, I don't think, since Frank Hardy's The Power Power Without Without Glory. Glory. I said to Lyndall, I think I could drink. And she said, well, go and drink somewhere else. (laughs) Fortunately, she never used to take me too seriously. I, I remember whining and saying, I don't feel very well. And she said the pyramids were built by people who didn't feel very well. That's true, I suppose. But they were well fed, I'm told. To what extent do you think, given that you say when you gave up drinking, you moved to Sydney... I didn't give up drinking. You stopped drinking alcohol. Yeah, but it wasn't like I gave it up through self-will. Self-will on its own. Self-will and self-reliance don't work. Do you think, given that you went to an AA meeting every night for four years, you say, that you replaced one addiction with another? Yes, I remember one of my colleagues at Griffith University put his nose in the air and he said, that AA is brainwashing. And I said, it certainly is, and I've got the sort of brain that needs to be washed very regularly. It's a different sort of, it's a healthy addiction. Yeah. I want to talk about your career, though, as a historian, especially in Queensland, that you wrote this two-volume history of Queensland. What happened with volume two? Well, what happened with volume two was that Joe got Sir Walter Campbell to sue me, and Sir Walter Campbell, who'd been the Chief Justice, appointed by the Joe government. And at the time, he was Chancellor of the University of Queensland, and the publishers were the, were the University of Queensland Press. So as soon as 
notes went out to all the media to return the books. And believe it or not, Rod, some of them, the media did. I cannot believe that. That's true. If a note ever comes in, please return this book, I never return it because, you know, firstly, it's going to be a collector's item and second, I want to know what it is that they don't want me to read. Well, if anybody's got a copy of Volume 2 of My History of Queensland and Sir Walter Campbell's in the uh, index, (laughs) it's worth a mozza. Because Sir Walter Campbell was the Chancellor of the University of Queensland, the University of Queensland press folded. And then Joe's Attorney General threatened me with criminal libel. And again, I whined to Lyndall, I might have to go to jail. And she said, well, you'd certainly smarten up the AA meetings in Boggo <laughs> Road. But... For those who didn't live through the Joe years in Queensland, or for those for whom he's just a figure in a history book. What was it like living in Queensland during the Joe Bjorki-Peterson years? Well, for those that opposed him, and there were very few that did. See, the media was supine in those days. The Courier-Mail in particular used to fall into line for a long while. It was a very tricky time because it was lucky that people knew that I don't drink alcohol, I didn't and don't drink alcohol and use other drugs because a lot of my friends got set up on drink driving and drug charges and set up for exposing themselves in public toilets. It was a very, very difficult time. You write in your book, 50 Years Sober, An Alcoholic's Journey by Ross Fitzgerald. This is how he did it. You have the electoral system that is heavily weighted in your favour. You have a police force at your beck and call, a judiciary, the appointments to which are in some ways politicised, a supine media, a very weak Liberal Party and probably a weak Labor Party at that time as well, not a very strong professional class, and if, with a few laudable exceptions, you have a university system whose staff and administrators don't speak out, That is how a person like Sir Joe managed to run the state for as long as in the way that he did. I couldn't have put it better myself. (laughs) (laughs) That shows you how easy it is for a democratic state to become undemocratic. And it wasn't necessarily Joe who, in fact, you quite rightly in your book say it wasn't a gerrymander. He didn't establish the voting system in Queensland. He just changed the Hanlon Labor government did was very authoritarian. Uh, I wrote the biography of Fred Patterson, who was Australia's only communist member of parliament. He was the member for Bowen for 1944 to 1950, and he got deliberately bashed on St Patrick's Day 1948 by a plainclothes Queensland policeman who I later identified as J.J. Jack Barney. There was a fellow called Tom Aitkins, who was a, a rebel independent, And he asked Hanlon, Premier Hanlon, you know, is somebody going to be prosecuted for Patterson's attempted murder? There was no inquiry. There was nothing. Patterson suffered from brain damage thereafter. Why do you think it was that the people of Queensland went along with it for so long? A lot of the citizenry go along, you know, went along with the Nazi regime and the fascist regime and Franco's regime. There's a lot of people going along with with Trump. Do you think that, like Trump, Bjorki-Peterson was seen as this kind of buffoon? People laughed at him. He was a figure of fun, and that was able to hide much of the 
damage that they do? No, I think the reason that people in Queensland liked him because they thought he was some sort of saviour. And in a way, he was very populist and he appeared to the masses. He could be very charming. Actually, my closest AA friend in Queensland is a copper called Davo. And Bob Catter, who's a friend of mine, had told Joe I'd just be the person to write his biography. And Davo and I drove up to Bethany, the Bjorki Peterson homestead outside of Kingaroy. And Joe said, isn't it strange us talking like this when you were so mean to me? And I said, well, I've been pretty tough on, on Labor Premier Goss. And there was a concrete bunker at Bethany that he said had all the evidence that he was innocent. And we were getting on well, and Flo made us um, pumpkin jaffles in a jaffel iron. Wow. And just as we were getting on well, in walks the son-in-law, who was a Lutheran pastor, took one look at me and thought Dracula had arrived and said, don't deal with this man, Joe. What kind of a biography could you have written of Joe Bjorki-Peterson? Well, it would be a warts and all biography. I still don't believe there were papers. I don't believe he could have been exonerated. But if, if I write anything, it's warts and all. In your book, you make the point that alcohol is not the problem. Otherwise, everyone who drank would be an alcoholic. Yes. But how bad is alcohol in our society, do you think? Do you think we'd be better off without it? Do you think that places that ban alcohol have fewer problems with violence and things like that? Not at all. Banning prohibition has the reverse effect. At the moment, this attempt, which I think is hysterical, all this anti-vaping legislation that's going through, prohibition in the long term never works. It turns on itself, just like censorship never works in the long term. Just like an alcoholic trying to stop drinking on his or her own doesn't work. For some people it does. For very few alcoholics over the long term. There's a very interesting book called The Natural History of Alcoholism. Professor George E. Valiant called The Natural History of Alcoholism and then The Natural History of Alcoholism Revisited. And he did this huge longitudinal study involving thousands and thousands of Americans going over a 40-year period. And one of the things he was able to demonstrate was that over the long term, meaning over two or three years, AA was by far the most successful agency in helping alcoholics. Now, you're right, of course. Some people just stop drinking on their own or some people get Jesus. You're right. But the most successful agency is AA, and I, I always tell people and their families, mm. why not avail yourself of the best? You finish 50 Years Sober with a really interesting observation, I thought. The whole book is fascinating, but you say that your greatest weakness is also your greatest strength. Just explain that. Well, that's right. Persistence is my greatest strength, but it can also be my greatest weakness. The fact that I persisted in going to AA is one of the most important things that I've ever done in my life. But I can still persist in old ways of behaviour uh, that don't work anymore. So yesterday's, uh, I suppose it's a cliche, but yesterday's solutions often 
aren't tomorrow's or today's. For someone who wants to stop drinking, what do you advise them to do? Firstly, we'll just go back one step, because in order to find out whether someone's an alcoholic, I suggest that they ask themselves these questions. Is alcohol costing you more than money? If picking up the first drink of alcohol, do you eventually behave in ways that cause you shame and remorse and disgust? And do you ever have periods, hours or days, where after drinking you don't remember what happened? Alcoholic amnesia. If you answer two to any of those three questions, uh, I think you're an alcoholic. And that's very interesting because people have got to want to stop drinking. I get loads of people ringing me saying, well, I've got to stop. I have to stop. And I say, oh, yes, but do you want to stop? I think the best thing is for they and their families to attend a couple of meetings, open meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous and go and listen. And at the same time, let their GP know what they're doing. And it's important that as alcoholics, we find general practitioners that have an understanding of alcoholism and of AA. You've led a remarkable life, you know, renowned historian in Australia, especially in Queensland, but throughout Australia. You've taught so many people. Is this your greatest legacy, do you think, in spreading the word of AA? Yes, yes. I think my primary purpose in life, especially since Lyndall's dead four years ago, my primary purpose in life is to stop drinking and stay stopped and to help other alcoholics who are still drinking and want to stop. One of the meetings I go to starts with uh, a minute silence for the alcoholic who still suffers, either inside or outside the room, because once alcohol is taken out of our lives, it could be a real carnival. I often talk about the carnival between my ears. Ross, thank you so much for your time. It's a pleasure, Rod. ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. 